I think we've been told many times this morning already that today's Father's Day. We know that, and uh, happy Father's Day. I guess I'm saying it to myself. But if you're um, an American, you probably know that fathers are not faring very well in America today. It's actually rather terrible. I'm old enough to know what it was like back in the 1950s. In the 1950s, if you turned on a television and they depicted fathers, they were almost always depicted in a father, in a good light. For example, father knows best, yes. Fathers were, were wise, they, were, they cared for their family, they um, were basically portrayed in a good light, but that is not the case anymore. Almost universally in our culture today, and I mean almost universally, all levels, media, even children's books, take the Berenstein Bears. The father is, of course, a doofus, which is what is normally the case. Magazines, movies, television, fathers are regularly portrayed as buffoons, brutish, drunks, deadbeats, aloof, clueless, self-indulgent, selfish, violent, inept, sex-crazed, aggressive, and of course today, add to all of that, the great evil of the patriarchy. This is someone who wrote this. At best, television dads are nominal or figurehead leaders of the home, but at worst, they are relegated to the intellectual level of the family pet. That is normal in America today. And then here's an article that the headline says, Why are sitcom dads still such doofuses? Well, because that's how we are regularly portrayed. The story is told of a, of a, a child that came to uh, his father one day and said, Daddy, could you make some animal sounds for us? And then the child said, Daddy, could you tell us what does a cow sound like? And so he went, moo. And then he said, what does a dog sound like? And he said, you know, woof. And he said, what does a, pat's, a cat sound like? And he went, meow. And he said, Daddy, could you please tell us, could you croak like a frog? And he goes, croak, croak, croak. And then his face just lit up. He said, Daddy, Daddy, Mommy said we could go to Disneyland when Daddy croaks. <laughs> that may be funny, but this is not funny. At a penitentiary, Hallmark Cards decided that they were going to come into the penitentiary on, on uh, Mother's Day and distribute free cards and so that the inmates could write a card to their mother. When Hallmark cards showed up, they were inundated with so many people, they ran out of cards. And uh, so they didn't even have cards for all of the inmates who wanted to write to their mothers. Well, a couple, a month or so passed and it was Father's Day and because of the incredible success of the Hallmark cards on Mother's Day, they decided to do the same thing for Father's Day. And this time they came prepared. They came prepared with a huge number of cards ready for the inmates to write a card to their father. They set up and not one inmate showed up. Not even one. I read you a quote. 
Some fathering advocates would say that almost every social ill found by America's children is related to fatherlessness. Every social ill in America is related to fatherlessness. Well, if you look at our culture, fathers are not doing well in almost every respect you can imagine. But today we're not going to look at the downside. We're going to look at the upside. We're going to take a look today at by far the greatest father who has ever lived. He has no peers. However, we don't learn that much from him, unfortunately. And this father is the heavenly father, and he's perfect. And you find him portrayed as a father most perfectly in the Bible, and I submit to you this is the most important passage in all the Bible on parenting. It's the parable of the prodigal son. But if you look in your um, uh, bulletin this morning, you'll see that the title is not the parable of the prodigal son. Rather, the title is the parable of the prodigal father. And you might think, well, did I make a mistake? I did not. Because if you took out your dictionary instead of a Bible this morning and looked up the word prodigal, this is what you would find. Obviously, a prodigal is a person, and I quote, who leaves home and behaves recklessly. And that's what we relate to the prodigal son. A second definition is, a person is a prodigal who spends money or resources freely and recklessly, like the prodigal son did in the parable that, that Regina just told us about. But this is the third definition. Having or giving something on a lavish scale. Having or giving something on a lavish scale. And it is that definition of prodigal that we're going to use today. For there is no being that has ever existed in the cosmos who is more lavish with his love than the prodigal father. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me today to Luke chapter 15? For that's where we find this, what some have called the greatest story ever told. There are many people, and I'm certainly one of them, that in everything that's been written to the tune of trillions of words, this is far and away the greatest story that any human being has ever told. It's the greatest. Now let me set the scene for you. The parable of the prodigal son actually comes as part three of Luke chapter 15. Um, it begins this way. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then the Bible says, And Jesus told them this parable. Not parables. Singular. So he then first of all tells the part one of this parable about the lost sheep. And a man has some sheep, and the sheep are lost. He searches for the sheep. He finds the sheep. He comes home, and they throw a party. And then part two of the parable about a coin. 
A person has a coin, they lose the coin, they search for the coin, they find the coin, they call their neighbors together and rejoice and have a party. And part three of the parable, there was a man who lost his son. And the son is found and the son comes home and he says, let's have a party. But it doesn't turn out that way. And so what Jesus is saying at the very outset is, the truth is, you care more about animals and money than you do about the souls of human beings, if the truth is told. You're more interested in your cattle and in your money than you are in people. Whoa. But it is this third part, this parable of the prodigal son that I'm going to read for you now. Now remember, in this parable, the father is the father. Try to pick out what he's like. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Ah, oh, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look! All these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders, yet you gave me, you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now in this parable, we have one of the most beautiful, succinct glimpses of the Heavenly Father that you will find anywhere. And what I'd like us to look at is what was the Heavenly Father like? What is the Heavenly Father like? And the obvious application for us is this is who we should be following as fathers. This is the one and only perfect Father. What are his characteristics? Well, the first thing that we notice in this text of Scripture is that a good father understands the nature of his children, which, by the way, we do not understand. Any good father knows that being a father is not a picnic, but it is a privilege. It takes a lot of commitment. It takes sacrifice. It takes hard work and wisdom. There's a lot involved. But the rewards, of course, are huge. You see, a good father knows, but most American fathers do not know this, a good father knows that children, by nature, are selfish. Surprise, surprise, surprise. They are not innocent. How do I know they are not innocent? Well, not only do I have five children and 11 grandchildren, but what do we have to teach our children? We teach our children to say please and thank you. They do not come out of the womb that way. They are completely ungrateful. You have to teach them that when you receive something, you say thank you. And when you want something, you say please. This is what God said. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. I have never taught, not even for one second, nor have I modeled to my children how to lie, cheat, and steal. And yet all of them lie, cheat, and steal. I never taught them to that. And I know my wife did not. And I don't think their siblings taught them. Where did they get it from? The Bible says it's bound up in the heart. It's there when they're born. You see, a father not only knows, however, that children are, are selfish, they're not innocent, but a father also knows that its children are, are precious, more precious than we could ever imagine. This is what God said in the 127th Psalm. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from Him. Moreover, anyone who's read the Holy Scripture, you know from the very words of Jesus himself that children embody the traits that God requires for entrance into eternal life. Now, when you say that, you wonder, what are the traits that they model? Is it their innate goodness that they model? Oh, no. Is it their innocence that they model? Well, maybe your kid's not mine. They, they can't... They love poking, hitting, doing things all the time. They love toilet words. I mean, they love all kinds of things. I never taught them that stuff, never. But they love it. So it's not their innocence. What is it? 
What is it about a child that Jesus says, unless you become like one of these, you cannot get into heaven? Well, I think what's clear about children is their trust, their vulnerability, their inability to advance their own cause apart from the help, the direction, and the resources of a parent. See, there's never been a child in human history who after birth can make it on their own. For so, so long, way longer than most animals, a child is completely dependent. And it is that understanding of complete and total dependence that God says that, that which a child perfectly demonstrates, that's what you will need to, to have in order for you to get into heaven. What were your expectations? Do you remember before you had your first child? Of course, you were going to be the parent of the first perfect child that ever lived. That's what you think. Every parent thinks that. Yeah, this child, they're going to just readily obey me. They're going to trust me. They're going to respect me. They're going to love me. Right. No, they're not. They're not going to do any of those things. Naturally, they're going to do quite the opposite. But before we have children, we kind of think that's what's going to happen. But you see, a good father understands. Did you know that the Bible, though it tells the stories of hundreds of people, very rarely in the Bible do you ever find a godly father. Spiritual leaders like Eli and Samuel do not have godly children. We have a 300-year genealogical train, unbroken, 300 years of the family of David, King David. And you don't find godly fathers ever having godly sons. And this is from a website called BibleTruths.net. To the surprise and astonishment of many, the Bible presents the scenario of godly sons and ungodly fathers. You far more often find in the Holy Scriptures godly sons coming from ungodly fathers. Now, we don't want to preach that, obviously. It's ridiculous. But it happens to be true. We do have our exceptions, thankfully. We have a Job, a godly man, and his children. We have a, a Zechariah and John the Baptist, a godly father and a very godly son. Probably a Joseph and a Jesus. But it's not common in the Holy Scriptures. The Bible places an astounding amount of importance on godly parenting. But this is the reality, fathers. Your children and mine are free moral agents. You've probably heard the phrase, God has no grandchildren because he doesn't. He has children. You cannot automatically pass on your faith as much as we dearly wish we could to our children. They must stand before the Lord themselves. And a godly parent knows that. And a godly parent also knows that the Bible gives us much instruction about what we should and shouldn't do. 
We're to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6 is one of the greatest passages in the whole Bible about how to raise a child in God's way. And then it has the warnings. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. In other words, don't treat children like adults. Understand what their nature is and treat them appropriately. Because if you don't, Paul says, they will become embittered or you'll destroy them. You see, God the Father knows his children and he knows us. But God also knows that his children come in two very different varieties. Now, at the end of this little list I'm going to give you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And I'm going to ask you to tell me which of these two you are more like. Here it goes. The first traits, I'm going to say, are the younger brother and the second one, the older brother. The younger brother says to his dad, hey, drop dead, dad. The older brother says, I consider you a slave driver, dad. The younger brother is the strong-willed child. The older brother is the compliant child. The younger brother is licentious. He loathes the rules. The older brother is legalistic. He loves the rules. The younger brother, his sins are external and overt and everyone can see them. But for the older brother, his sins are covert. You don't see them. The younger brother is into immediate gratification. I want what I want now. But you see, the older brother is into deferred gratification. I'll wait to get my share later. The younger brother is a risk taker. He's a hardy partier. The older brother is a safe player and he's a hard worker. The younger brother is driven by passion. The older brother is full of anger. The younger brother is outwardly estranged from his father, but the older brother is inwardly estranged from his father. The younger brother is rowdy and crazy. The younger brother, I mean the older brother, is self-righteous and conservative. Okay, which are you? How many younger brothers do we have here? The wild and crazy ones. Oh, come on, admit it. You, I know you are. You liars. Come on, be honest. Oh, good. We got a few honest souls in this group. Not, oh, a few. How many older brothers are we? Here I am. <laughs> I see some have two hands up. Yeah, that's me. But, oh, I even see, yay. But, they're both sinners, but we only call one of them sin. The church calls one group of these, the wild and crazy ones, you sinner, but these other people, we put them on our boards. <laughs> we reinforce their behavior. But God's not that way. You see, I was, I'm, an, I'm second out of eight children, but I'm like the older brother. Oh, I could hide my sin real well. But there's dangers. There's incredible dangers. In fact, I would submit to you that the dangers are even greater because the younger brother's lifestyle doesn't work. 
you will always, 100% of the time, end up in disaster somewhere. And that disaster will always be terribly painful. And pain is a good teacher. It will drive us back to God. On the other hand, hardworking, compliance, following the rules, it works extremely well. You will likely be successful. You will likely have people like you. But there are hidden sins that creep into that kind of a heart. Pride, lust, jealousy, envy, self-righteousness. You can't see any of those in me. I can hide them all. But those are dangerous. Because as I've said before, there's only one sin that will keep us out of heaven. Only one. That's self-righteousness. And the wild and crazy kid is not likely to be self-righteous. If he is, he's really dumb. <laughs> you know this isn't working, and I'm a, I'm a screw-up. But the one who's compliant doesn't see that. See, I'm better than the rest of those people after all. You know, God got a real good catch when he got me. So we think. But it's not true. You see, a wise parent is not overly impressed by compliance, nor overly destroyed by craziness. He knows that sin has many disguises, and often the worst sins are unseen, and sometimes even reinforced by we religious people. Now in this parable, right from the very beginning, we see incredible disrespect. So incredible that one of the great writers of Middle Eastern cultural history by the name of Kenneth Bailey said, there has, this has never been found in any writing that has ever existed in the Middle East, ever, where a child has requested his inheritance before his father dies. It has never existed even once. Now in America, we can kind of understand that because we're a little bit off. But in the Middle East, when you have respect for age, there has never been any writer apart from our Lord Jesus Christ who has ever shown this. Because what is the child saying to his dad? It's obvious, dad, I love your money. I hate your guts. So let's do this. Why don't you give me your money and why don't you kick the bucket? That's what he's saying. He says, because you don't get an inheritance until your father dies. He says, Dad, I want you dead now. I want the money now. And what in the world does the father do? He gives it to him. But think for a minute. How many of us have not, by the way we've lived our lives, said, hey, God, this is the deal. I want a good life. I want blessings. I want money. I want pleasure. But, you know, hey, I don't like your rules. So let's play it this way. Why don't you just give me the money now and kind of stay out of my life and let me have a good time? We do things. And, and, and what does God say? When we say that to God, what does he say? 
He says, with tears flowing in his eyes, he says, okay. Okay, I'll do it. Now, if I was a parent, I'd get out the strap. Well, can you imagine a father like this? But this is our father. This is what he has done. But, but what incredible abuse. Um, Timothy Keller, who writes on this parable, said this. It is difficult to imagine a more dramatic illustration of the quality of love which grants freedom even to reject the lover than that given in the opening scene. Ordinarily, when our love is rejected, we get angry, we retaliate, and we do what we can to diminish our affection for the rejecting person so we won't hurt so much. But this father maintains his affection for his son and bears the agony. But it gets worse. Did you notice the disrespect of his older son? Here, in that society, the father would never gone out to a son who refuses to come to a party. Never. It's totally against the culture. But this father... Our father, he comes to us. And he says, oh, son, come to the party. And the son goes, look, you are nothing but a stinking slave driver. That's what you are. You see, this son, who is the good kid, basically looks at his dad as a slave driver, while his other brother thinks he's Santa Claus. And they're both dead wrong. Our father is not Santa Claus, nor is he a slave driver. He's the great, great lover. In both cases, the father responds to this kind of disrespect very kindly. I remember some years ago when I was uh, raising my children, I read a book entitled Parent Power. And it described a scenario that so often happens with parents, and I did it myself. It goes something like this. Child, do this. No. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Well, the role's just reversed. The child turned you into a little baby and made a fool out of you. That's not the way parenting's supposed to work. You don't get into a verbal fight with a child as a parent. You're the parent, after all. You say, child, I want you to do this. No. Oh, let's stop right there. I don't negotiate these kinds of things with you. Here's what I want you to do this, and if you choose to do it, great. If you do not, these are the consequences that you will face. You make the choice. You kept your parental status. But once you get into an argument like that with a child, you have reversed roles. They took over and they made an idiot out of you. You can't do that. Because parents are supposed to be parents. Well, this good father here, our heavenly father, is thick-skinned and tender-hearted at the same time. He's able to overlook an offense He's humble and approachable and willing to go the extra mile to reach out to his children, even when his children treat him like dirt. And he does not reverse the roles with his child at all. You see, 
Sociologists tell us that one of the great dangers to abuse is that those who have been abused become abusers. And here we have a father who is massively abused who does not become an abuser. And we have a father who has endured the abuse of 14 billion people for almost all of our lives and never once has he turned into an abuser. That is our God. How does he do it? Well, because he keeps the goal of a good parent in mind. Now, if, if I asked you as a parent, what do you want from your children? What is it that you long for? Or if I went out into the streets of Riverton right now and said, what, what as parents are you looking for in your children? Well, most of them would say, well, I want them to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I want them to be successful. Someone wrote this. The primary purpose of parenting is to raise fully functional adults who can take care of themselves and make a positive contribution to society. And I say, that's nice, and I would like that too, but that is not God's purpose. That is not his ultimate purpose. If you, for most of us, what is your purpose as a parent? Well, you want to be able to untie the wings, the apron strings, and give your children wings so that they can grow up and lead happy lives. That's what our society says. But you see, that is not the goal of the prodigal father nor should it be our goal as well. You see, the goal of the prodigal father is that he wants to build a relationship of trust and love that is not dependent on the stuff he provides for his children. He wants them to trust him and love him simply for who he is, not for what he does for them. And so what does he do? From the time that these children are born, he sows seeds of grace and goodness into their lives. So much so that when the younger son is, can't even eat pig food, he says, oh, wait a minute. My father even treats servants well, and I'm his son. And the older son knows enough about his father's graciousness that he can, he can basically swear at his dad and his dad doesn't go after him. Why? Because he knows what the goal of parenting is. There's a Christian counselor by the name of Larry Crabb who's passed away now. And when I was at a seminar with, once, with him once, he said, you must differentiate between goals and desires. So, for example, it is a bad goal to have a good marriage. Because you don't have any control over that. Your wife may or your husband may not like you for no reason at all and be gone. And you don't have a good marriage. Now that's an excellent desire, but it's not a good goal. Because a goal must be something that you do have some control over. So it is not a good goal to have godly children because you really don't have complete control over that. It is an outstanding desire. In fact, my desire for my children is that they might be like Jesus, who we find in Luke, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's a great, 
great desire. Here, here is our goal. Our goal as Christian parents is to faithfully work with God to develop our children's maturity physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually, ethically. That's what we're here to do. Beware. Beware of your goals. Because if your goal is for the perfect child, you could live a very miserable life. If your desire for that, that is good. Your goal is, I want to God every day that I can cooperate with you in, in maturing these precious, precious children and grandchildren you have given to me for your glory. That's my goal. And that's a good one. But perhaps the most difficult facet of being a good father is the one that the Heavenly Father does perfectly. And that is to let natural consequences play out in the lives of their children. I've had to do this, and it's extremely hard. You see, the toughest task, really, of a parent is to say no to your children. One of the strongest pulls on a parent's heart is that you want to rescue your children from pain and you want to go out of your way to enhance their happiness. However, we often forget as parents that pain is, off, is, off, is a powerful teacher and sometimes pain is the only teacher. Did you notice how the father does not enable or rescue either of his children when they are in incredible pain? Now, if I was the father of the younger son who can't even get enough food to eat, I would wire him money. Does the father wire him money? No. Why? Because if he wired him money, his lifestyle would have continued, and the goal of the father is that the son would come to his senses and return home. And with the older son, I know what I would have done for sure. After that, I go out to that son, and that son reads me the riot act. I would say, son, 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 here, here, here's the deal. Put on a happy face. Let's go to the party. Smile. Look nice. Next week, I'll throw you a bigger party. If the father had done that, he would have destroyed his child. He needed to let the child stew in his juices. Why? It was the only hope that this child would come to his senses. You see, one of the most difficult assignments we have as parents is we have to learn to say no. Because more important than our child, children are always happy and free for pain is that they come to their senses and love us and trust us for who we are mutually. The good father then, what does he do when his son is in the distant country eating pig food. It seems to me that he never loses hope. Someone has written, a, 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 the title for the par this parable is The Wayward Lad and the Waiting Dad. What's the dad doing every day? I can almost see him. Every single day he gets up in the morning and tells his servants what to do. And he goes to the crest of the hill and looks every day, longing and hoping and praying for the return of his son. And I can imagine the father every day as he works with his older son who's increasing in bitterness. 
Every day he longs and prays for closeness with his elder son, which is not there yet. But what's the key? Someone wrote a book, it's entitled The Sting in the Tail, T-A-L-E. Parables are designed to have a sting in the tail. There's something in the tail that stings you. It's like slaps you in the face. But the sting is always cultural. So for example, when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, Emilio, there's the sting. None of you screamed. You see, you don't scream because we have Good Samaritan laws. We have Good Samaritan hospitals. We think Good Samaritans are good. But you see, when Jesus told this parable to Jewish people, there were no Good Samaritans. And to make a Samaritan the hero of the story is a slap in the face. When I read the parable of the prodigal son, not a single one of you screamed. Not a one of you. And that's because we're Americans. And we do not get the parables because you did not get the sting in the tail. I did this when I was in Africa. I read this parable. I was up front in front of hundreds of students where I taught, and all of a sudden they go, ah! Do you know where? Everyone starts screaming. When you read this parable in Africa, not a one of you ever screamed. And I've read it in churches in America over and over again. Never has anyone screamed. Do you know where you scream? The father ran to his child. In those societies, fathers never run. It's the most undignified thing you could ever do. A father would never run, much less run to a child who has disrespected you. The community has a responsibility to punish and perhaps kill that child because of the disgrace that that child has brought to that family. But this father, who is the father, not only to show the, the graciousness of his heart, but to protect his child from certain death, he runs to his child, which an oriental father would never do. And then he grabs him. He kisses him. He calls for the best robe. He calls for a ring. He calls for shoes. All God's children got shoes. And he says, let's throw a party. That's our Father. Our Heavenly Father is full of grace toward us. He runs to us. Remember, the essence of Christianity is we don't find God. God finds us. We didn't die for God. God died for us. And the running of the Father is the equivalent of Jesus on the cross. He is going to take it upon himself, all the abuse, all the disrespect, and even the community's hatred to protect his beloved son. He says, oh, I'm not going to treat you as any second-class child. You're my son, and I always love you. Whether you're the president or a prisoner, you are my son, and I will always love you. That's, that's our God. Wow. Well, I think you get the point. This is our Heavenly Father we've been talking about. He understands us perfectly. He understands our dignity. He understands our depravity. And He is filled with compassion for us. And the Good Shepherd knows us all by name. He knows us well. 
And, and he knows. He knows that, that, that we come in very different types, but we have in the Holy Scriptures God's incredible love and he reaching. Listen to this list. I made this quickly. He he knows how to reach blameless people like Job and liars like Jacob and murderers like Moses and sex addicts like Samson. And he can reach outsiders like Ruth and adulterers like David and intellectuals like Solomon. And he can reach depressives like Isaiah, I mean like Elijah, maleficents like Manasseh, tyrants like Nebuchadnezzar. He can reach questioners like Habakkuk. He can reach royalty like Esther. He can reach social outcasts like the Samaritan woman. He can reach demonized people like Mary Magdalene. He can reach legalists like Nicodemus. He can reach religious zealots like Paul. He can reach sexually immoral people like the Corinthians, and the list could go on and on and on. He can reach us all. Why? Because he knows what we're like and he loves us. And he does not respond to our disrespect in kind. He doesn't. If he did, we'd all be dead. We sang this morning a couple of our songs about saves a wretch like me. He doesn't reject wretches. He saves us. That's what he's done. And he longs to develop an eternal relationship with his children. There's nothing greater. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to love him. And he doesn't force our hand. And he's not going to substitute temporary happiness because he wants an eternal relationship with us, which is greater by far. And he never gives up on his children. But this, our Heavenly Father, runs to us. He dies for us. And he celebrates when even one person comes into heaven. And so, fathers, let's take our cues from the only perfect father that ever lived. And he's still alive and well, our Heavenly Father. Older brothers, check our hearts, lest we lose God's perspective on lost people with whom we interact every day. He loves them. He wants them. And younger brothers, come home. Come home. It's a good place. I end with a, just a word about my father. I too, like you, Carol, was blessed with a dear, dear father. He passed away more than 10 years ago. He was good, a simple man. He was a carpenter. I like to say that the only way that I'm like Jesus is I'm the son of a carpenter. <laughs> it's probably the only way, but it, that is true. I am the son of a carpenter. But dad was a simple man, but he, he loved Jesus and he loved us. We were eight children. He worked hard. But... um. I received word that my father had uh, slipped into a coma. And so I, 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 I went home. I went to, to Wisconsin to see him. I got there on a Monday, and he died Tuesday, the next day. When I was there, I never got to see him a lot. I mean, out of the comatose state. So I never got to, to hear his voice, but I did tell him of my love. But my siblings who were with him on Saturday, just before I got there, they said, Dad did something really weird. He was in a coma, and all of a sudden, he started to sing. 
My dad loved to sing. He sang loud. That's why we all, all of our boys, we think the most masculine thing you can do is sing loud, like my dad. And all of a sudden, my dad started to sing. I wish I could have been there. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. And he never said another word. I thought, man, I want to go that way. If I can die that way, I can die happy. But I was there when my father passed away, and we were all there except for my mother. She was getting some rest. And after we called her and said, Mom, Dad has passed away, she showed up, and she greeted all of us, and we're a big family. And then she went over to my dad, and we're all watching. She put her hands on his dead body, and she said, Harold, you've given me a really good life. Harold, you've given me a really good life. And I thought, I want to be like my dad. And I want to be like my dad. Let's pray. Oh, we want to be like you. What a privilege to be fathers. But a far greater privilege is that of being children of the best father in the cosmos. Fill us with the joy of being children of the king and help us as fathers to, in ways small and great, be like you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, please stand with me, and once again, uh, happy Father's Day to all of you fathers, and um, um, I don't even know what, what we could say for a benediction today, except fathers and mothers, we have a Father in heaven who is the best. Let us leave this place today, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, faithfully follow the perfect Father. God bless you.